WBCA Radio is proud to present City Talk, where fascinating conversation is alive and well, with your host, Boston Radio veteran, Ken Meyer. Hello, everybody. Welcome to our first show of 2022. And our guest is the man whom you hear voicing that intro and outro on every broadcast, a real Boston icon, a gentleman whom I'm proud to say has been a friend for over 30 years. His name is Jordan Rich. He has written his autobiography. And uh, Jordan, I got to tell you, that was a good read. I really enjoyed that book. Oh, you're so kind, but I'm not going on until I get my residual checks for my intro. As Larry Glick used to say, hello, <laughs> operator. Hello. Hello. We have a bad line. <laughs> well, anyway, it's it's great to be here. Thanks, Kenny, for the invitation. I appreciate it very, very much. And Happy New Year. Well, Happy New Year to you. You wrote this book for your children and the other members of your family, correct? Yeah, I did. Uh, I am not a writer. I am the first to say it. The most I had written prior to this were 60 second commercials <laughs> and a couple of blogs. <laughs> so I, I did it uh, like a lot of folks during the pandemic. I had some downtime and I decided, well, maybe it's somewhat interesting to a few people here and there. But I, I just had the, the urge after interviewing so many authors over the years. So, yeah, I dedicated it to my actually my grandbabies, my two granddaughters. Um, I figured, hey, maybe there's a record that uh, they'll discover in a dusty bin someday, and it'll be this record of a certain period of time in radio. So. Well, it brings up an interesting question. If the pandemic had not struck, as it were, would you have not written this book yet? I, I had it in my mind, Kenny, for the last five or six years. And again, I, I think the reason that it it sort of took space up in my mind was because you and I both, and I, I credit you with being an inspiration for a lot of us, have have sat down with countless authors of, of various vintage, from historians to uh, sports writers to novelists. And I'm, I'm fascinated by the, the, the whole format and plan and, and work strategy of all these people. And it's all a little bit different. And um, I, I think now, more than ever, the older we get, the more we're thinking about our legacy. And for me, it's just a personal legacy with my family and want to pass along whatever silly little bits of knowledge I've acquired. So I, it's a combination of age and uh, getting the bug from talking with all these authors. I probably would have done it, but I think the, uh, the stuck-at-home stuff got me going a little faster than I thought I might. All right. Our careers parallel in a lot of different ways. One of them is obtaining a tape recorder at an early age. You did it through SNH green stamps. My dad did it by working overtime and going out and paying for it. Yeah, the uh, this it's funny. The people who've read the book comment on that. If you're of a certain generation, comment on the green stamp question more than any other. It seems. Uh, yeah, I was uh, eight years old, I believe, and um, my folks were frequent visitors to the SNH Green Stamp store. And prior to that purchase, which was so important, uh, I got a telescope the year before. Could look at the moon before the guys landed on it. And uh, yeah, and the tape recorder was magic because I was a fan of 60s TV, as you uh, were, Kenny, and I was a Mission Impossible freak, and I couldn't get enough of that. But the idea of hearing voices, my own and others in the family, uh, was fascinating to me. And I learned how to 
edit and erase and re-record and do all those things that are second nature to most people. And it was yep. great. That was that yep. changed my life. Did it change yours? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It was interesting to hear what I really sounded like to other people. I used to make up imaginary programs and play records. And I used to record newscasts and make them seem like they were part of my radio show and all, all kinds of stuff like that. I was fascinated with a tape recorder. I don't think and, there's anybody, you and me, or just two examples, who have been in this business in, in the era that we're in, who didn't do that, have that imaginative play uh, with radio and you're in your room with nobody yep. listening. It, it's, a, it's a weird but lovely construct and it seems to have uh, impacted a lot of people who whom we both know now our school did not have a radio station mm -hmm. as you did in randolph but we had plays and you and i were both in plays i wasn't in anything like 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 you were like uh, uh, brigadoon and the music man and um, uh, um oh, others Wait, you've done your research oh. on me but we still but we still had that bug about being in front of an audience and the ability to perform. So true. Which, and 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 I, I don't know the answer I'll ask you, but with me, I owe a lot of it to my father. My father uh, always did community theater and was a singer and in fact uh, appeared on community auditions in the late 40s with Leonard Nimoy, a friend of his at the time. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, they didn't win. They were a singing group and they didn't win. But uh, that was the bug. And so I was uh, some of it's genetic. But, yeah, I, I, it's something about wanting to make people laugh or in some cases cry or at least feel. And that was the that was the energy that got me going. And I'm sure it was the same. Was, was there anybody in your family who was theatrical or? No, actually, no. My mother used to work for Bausch and Lam in Rochester, New York. Uh, and help with manufacturing eyeglasses. Mm -hmm. And my dad worked for Ritter Dental Company uh, for 40 years and helped manufacture dental equipment. But they were supportive in whatever I wanted to do. Um, I wanted to get into radio. My parents had no contacts, as it were, but they, they did help me out. They got me very friendly with a gentleman in Rochester, New York, uh, at a radio station similar to WBC as far as power and prestige. That was WHAM. Oh, yeah. and, and, and that really got me going. He was a wonderful guy and died much, much too soon. He was only 53 uh, when he passed away on a Sunday night. After doing an interview with Don Cherry, as a matter of fact, before he became coach wow. of the Boston Bruins. Huh. Wow. So You know, um, it, it's. I'm so glad you mentioned about your folks, whom I had the chance to meet many years ago uh, yeah. at their 50, was it their 50th wedding anniversary? Yes, it was. Yep. You emceed it. I, I tell people that, that story. That's a wonderful time in, in my memory. But the, the point I wanted to make was, yes, my parents were very supportive at a time when a lot of kids my age, you know, were being groomed for law school or business or selling insurance or whatever. I mean, and nothing wrong with any of those professions. But I, from an early age, knew I didn't want to sit behind a desk and do that. I wanted to perform. And my folks gave me the support. And you can't say enough about that, either nope. one of us, right? Nope, yeah. you can't. It's, it's a great feeling. They, they never said, no, don't do this. This is crazy. 
you you shouldn't do this. You should tune pianos or whatever, which is the last thing in the world I wanted to do. I've always told people if I ever got in that profession, you'd have had a piano with the most broken strings in the world. <laughs> the key to your success is not being the a key. piano. <laughs> exactly. I, I just wasn't <laughs> cut out for it. Now, Curry College played a great deal into your life as Graham Junior College did into mine. I had a mentor named Dick Walsh, who is still a friend of mine to this day. Two people that got involved in your life and helped you were a guy named Kenny Carberry and Roger Allen. Yes, and again, our parallels are striking, uh, you and me. Curry College, for those who don't know, is located in Milton, south of Boston. And it's a school that was founded back in the late 1800s. One of the original, not the founder, but one of the original um, um, deans, I believe, was Alexander Graham Bell. So there's that communication connection. And it it was uh, an opportunity for me to go to a place where I could do radio and learn broadcasting from year one, freshman year. And you mentioned two names. One of them is my business partner and best pal to this day, Ken Carberry. And um, his dad is a well-respected and well-loved Boston uh, broadcaster and manager and owner. And then Roger Allen, uh, who passed years ago, but he was our mentor and teacher and professor and got me my first real break. And these are people that mean the most. And and I imagine you mentioned Dick Walsh. I imagine you had other mentors along the way, people who helped you. Yep. I had my friend in Rochester and uh, a blind announcer, believe it or not, in Washington, D.C., who used to work with Willard Scott. And ah. His name was Ed Walker. And they used to do a radio show on WRC out of Washington called The Joy Boys. <laughs> and and some of their stuff is available on YouTube if you ever want to check it out. They were very, very funny. They would just come up with an idea, and then they would sit down and do a a, a bit or a script without a script. You know, they'd come up and, and like um, Ed Walker would do the most beautiful imitation of Tony Marvin, uh, Arthur Godfrey's old announcer. Mm. And and uh, they just do all kinds of wacky stuff. Well, the uh, theater of the mind, which is the old cliche, is what we live for. And the ability to to be yourself at one moment and somebody else or somebody making fun of whatever, uh, having fun and, and ad-libbing. I mean, ad-libbing is what I live for. In fact, uh, I'm much better on the fly than I am with a script at times. So I uh, couldn't have gotten into the better position in terms of career. <laughs> Certainly. When I when I started in Boston, I was lucky enough to start at a station like WBZ, a big station in Boston. A big station where you eventually got started was WRKO. Right. And uh, RKO for RKO General, which is, you know, Kenny, was the movie studio uh, way back. Uh, it was a broadcast mecca way back and then it became associated with the tire company rko general tire company right uh but yeah. wrko was the was a flagship station in boston an am imagine that an am music station not top 40 in the late 70s that was number one and just amazing so that was my first gig and i uh, write about it in the book uh, i i was lucky enough at 19 to be pegged by roger to go to the airport and work as a weather reporter with the National Weather Bureau folks. 
out of a uh, broom closet. That was my first yeah. studio. A beautifully I cracked up when I heard that. I cracked up when I read that. that. That's hysterical. I could tell you how many whiteout containers the U.S. government uses <laughs> on a regular basis. But, uh, but that then, was fine. You know, it was great. And you got to work with a gentleman who eventually succeeded me at WBZ. And his name was Norm Nathan. Uh, was it Norm who took over for the weekend? That's right. After yep. you after you left. Um, after I left. Yep. Yeah, Norm Nathan. Uh, I was a big fan in in the 60s and 70s as as a kid. And I know you can identify with this Mr. Parallel Universe with me. <laughs> uh, I would listen in bed on my little transistor to radio stations around the country, the AMs that would bounce and skip on the ionosphere and you pick them up. And, uh, but one of the local stations, and we'll just keep dropping call letters here. Why not? <laughs> why not? WH, WHDH 850 on the dial, a tremendous radio station with the likes of Jess Kane and um, so many, Alan Derry. I mean, so many great. Yep. Vin Maloney. But, oh, Vin Maloney and uh, Dave Supple later on. And uh, yep. oh, who was so a friend many. of mine. Yeah. Um, Clem Joe Clemente. Oh, Joe Clemente. Uh, Anne Marie Rowan, who became a great yep. PR woman. Um, so anyway, Norm did the overnight show. And there was something about overnights even then that I found fascinating. And it was a sort of a jazz. It was called Sounds in the Night. It was a jazz show with callers occasionally and guests. And it was simply fun. It was Norm being Norm. And a, a trivia question for you, Kenny Boy. You remember who yep. succeeded Norm in that show? Uh, no, as a matter of fact, I don't. His first name was Jack. Jack Lazar. <laughs> I love it when you get excited. Jack Lazar. <laughs> no, I know. I, this is fun. But anyway, so I was a big fan of Norm. I knew all of his bits. I knew everything about him. And then I got a chance to work with him just by a fluke at RKO in the morning in the studio. That was a great great thrill and then later i uh i listened to him on on the air I, I would listen to you and then when you left i listened to him for a while you know it's it's funny you mentioned jack lazar because a few minutes ago i mentioned dick walsh lazar used to work at weei in boston and do a show sponsored by american airlines called music till dawn mm -hmm. and his en his engineer was dick walsh it it so, is such radio is is probably the smallest of all the worlds in terms of who you know and who's done something that affected something else. I, I don't know if it's still that way because it's so corporate now, but in those days, yeah. those great radio stations, including EEI at 590 and 850 and and uh, MRE or, or ITS or MEX, whatever, whatever it was at the time. I came to Boston in 1967 and I just fell in love with talk radio because in Rochester, you never had much. You had an hour-long show called The Opinion Program on one station. And when I came here, you had WEEI doing it all day. You had WBZ with uh, Bob Kennedy. Um, Steve Fredericks was here on WMEX. And uh, I remember Dick Walsh said to us our first day in class, he said, for homework, I want you to listen to the radio. Mm -hmm. That's all. And I'd always see him later on and I'd say to him, you know, Dick, I'm still carrying out your homework assignment, but it ain't as much fun as it used to be. <laughs> <laughs> well, you're talking about an era that was 
so special in Boston. And I think Boston stands out as one of the great AM leaders in the country. And it's still the case that WBZ leads the the rest of the market in terms of overall ratings. But it's all about mixing it up with conversation and uh, whether it be sports or politics or religion or fun stuff. You know, uh, you you would talk about old time radio and you talk about uh, movie stars and talk with them, whatever it might be. There's there's an urge. Maybe you've noticed people in Boston never shut up. And I think that's <laughs> that's why it's a great market to work in in this area. Uh, and look at NPR stems from Boston. So much of the great programming comes out of this area. So I uh, I couldn't agree with it. Now, do you remember, uh, as we go back down memory lane, memory lane, some of the personalities on WEEI in the 60s? Sure. There was Paul Benzaquin. Uh, there was Len Lawrence. I used to get, I used to uh, sit down at night and listen to Jim Westover. Jim Westover. Oh, what a classic announcer he was. A Les Woodruff. Yes, I knew Les Woodruff. In fact, Dick Walsh knew him as well. Um, Howard Nelson. Listen. Howard Nelson. Yes, he had a religious program on, yep. on WEEI. Yep, I remember all those names very well. It was, it was, it was entirely different than it is today. But boy, right. that, was, that was a great time to be alive and a great time to be in a city like Boston. And there's a name we, we left out. It's probably the most predominant or preeminent name, and that's Jerry Williams. Uh, yeah, I've uh, heard that name. <laughs> <laughs> who was a powerhouse and a controversial fellow then and, and always, but he got his start uh, in Philly, I believe, and then came to Boston and killed it in, when he was here. Yeah, he came twice. He worked at WMEX and then went to Chicago um, and then came back to Boston again uh, at WBZ, a guy named Jim Lightfoot hired him mm -hmm. and uh he came in uh, 68 or yeah 68 i met him in 71 i worked with jerry when bz celebrated their 50th anniversary on the air we did a whole week of old time radio personalities eight to midnight we had a half hour for each one and man i'll tell you that was one of the greatest thrills of my life to do well, that and especially name, with name jerry Name a few of them for the audience, because it's fun. Well, uh, there was Bob Hope, there was Bob and Ray, there was Milton Berle, and uh, believe it or not, Vaughn Monroe, who owned a nightclub here in Massachusetts, worked at WBZ as a staff announcer in the 30s. Yeah. He, we got him when he was in town. We had, um, oh, Art Linkletter. We no big names, names, huh? <laughs> no, no, we couldn't get anybody. <laughs> We had um, Kenny Delmar, who was the announcer for Fred Allen. We had Julie Stevens, who was in the romance of Helen Trent. Um, oh, gosh. We had um, uh, Bill Stern, a great sports announcer. We had Red Barber, uh, who broadcast for the Dodgers and oh, the yes. Yankees. Yes. Um, just, just a, and it was so much fun being able to do it. We had Don Wilson who announced for Jack Benny. Um, it was, it was great. I'll tell you, I, I really enjoyed that. Cause I mean, I got to talk to all these people, man, I'm, am I really talking to Don Wilson? He was, <laughs> it was, I, I was, of course, everybody heard me all over the station, you know, wow. Did you really get excited? You know, yeah, it's, why it's, not? I just talked to Don Wilson. 
It's common knowledge that uh, your affable host here, friends and neighbors, uh, has has a real love and passion for what he does to the extent that he's fallen off more chairs than some drunks <laughs> in uh, CD bars. No, I'm just kidding, of course. But, <laughs> well, uh, then in 75, we did a, a live three-day broadcast down on the Cape, and we got to meet all these people in person. I remember hearing that. I absolutely heard that. I loved every minute of it. I remember it. Yeah. Oh, God, I had a ball. I, I my biggest kick was hearing Brett Morrison do the opening of The Shadow live <laughs> on the air. Did, what I about Fred that, uh, from the Lone Ranger? Did you? Uh, no, I didn't know. I didn't know him yet. Fred Foy. I did not yeah. know him as yet. I got in contact with him once when I was talking about him on the air and his daughter heard the broadcast and called me one day at the station and said, look, my dad's going to be in Boston such and such a weekend. Would you like to meet him? And would I like to meet him? Are you kidding? And we were friends right up until he passed away. In fact, I spoke at his memorial service. Mm, he was so, tremendous, uh, tremendous talent. Yeah, Lovely guy. Tremendous talent, a great guy whom you got to know when we were doing our events at Massasoit Community College. You did the best imitation of Groucho Marx I ever heard. Well, thank you. Um, I always say, say the about secret, my <laughs> say to say, say the secret word and win a hundred dollars. Yeah, I always say that uh, my impressions are mostly people that nobody ever heard of, so it doesn't really help my <laughs> act. But uh, that, those were great days, and that was a throwback to not only old radio but to theater for me because uh, I had really enjoyed the the stage work in my youth. So uh, occasionally I do something here and there, but that was. 18 or 19 years I did that with you, uh, something like yeah, that. Yeah, that, that was a long time, and it was a lot of fun. And we got to meet some of the old radio greats, too. Uh, Ezra Stone, who was Henry Aldridge, mm. and uh, Willard Waterman, who was the great Gildersleeve. Um, I, I got his... a kiss from Gail Storm. <laughs> <laughs> Betsy Palmer was Betsy Palmer, yes. one year. Um Robert Horton uh, from Wagon Train. Robert Horton. Uh, who was the, the fellow from Kelsey's Bar? Um, uh, oh, Bob Hastings. Bob Hastings. Alan White from uh, Mr. Ed, right? Alan Young. Alan Young. Did I say Alan White? Sorry about Alan Young. Yeah, yeah Alan Young. Yep. Yeah, and, it was a real thrill and, to meet him. Uh, meeting, um, and you'll have to help me with the name, uh, uh he played in everything. He was a character actor. Uh, William uh, Gidget's father. <laughs> oh, God. oh, Bill Schallert. Billy, uh, B William Schallert. Thank you. Oh, my God, Kenny. Thank you so much. <laughs> you saved me. But that was a thrill meeting and working with them, not just meeting them, but hanging out and, and reading scripts with them. Oh, I know. It was great. And Jess Kane got involved with that as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a real kick to be able to work with him, too. Um, you went from WRKO and now I think, and it's only cause I forgot you went to W what was then WSSH and were there yeah. for a long time. Yes. Uh, of course, part of the book is just the story of life, ups and downs, failures, which is a big part of this business. You and I both know, and that's, you take your lumps and you move on. So when I lost the RKO thing after five years, and that was inevitable, I picked up a little uh, work, I, whatever work I could get while I was building my little studio company. And I, one of them was uh, up in Lowell at uh, a, an old venerable station, AMWLLH. And I did the talk show there 
from 6 to 8 p.m. dinner hour, and it was really tough because you could barely get a call unless you were giving away stuff. So I had to learn how to ad-lib. But then I worked at the FM station, which was in the same building, uh, SSH, sort of an easy listening uh, adult contemporary thing. And I ended up there about 15 years doing mornings. And you grew up playing Neil Diamond records. I grew up. Yeah. And I I ended up hating every Neil Diamond, Barbara Streisand, (laughs) Kenny Loggins, Kenny Rogers. No, I, I, I did what I did. And I, I, I'm very happy I did it. I loved it. It was tough work because it was early morning as opposed to overnight even. That's early morning is the worst. Have you done mornings, Kenny? Uh, no, I've done overnights. Uh, that's that. been about it. Yeah, um, there's something really wrong about getting up at 3 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I anybody. talked to um, Wally Bryan about that, and he said after a while, he just he just he was getting older, and he just said, I, I just couldn't do it anymore. Yeah, that's why I, that's why I retired. Now, we have had program directors who are very strange. And if you let a personality's name on the air that didn't work at your radio station, you got chastised, which I thought was totally ridiculous. And there's a story you talk about with Jess Kane. Yeah, and, and I don't want to mention the, the fellow's name and because it was a different time. He's actually... Uh somebody I've been in touch with and no hard feelings, but in 19, I believe it was 84 or 85 when Jess was retiring, or maybe it was closer to 90. I'm thinking maybe that was it. And it was Jess's last day on the air. He had been on the air for 40 years in this market. There wasn't a human being alive who didn't know the name and didn't know what he did. So all I did was take 30 seconds and congratulate him and thank him for his service to the city of Boston and the community. And uh, subsequently got reamed out because how dare I insinuate that there's any other radio station on the dial. And that's changed a lot over in in the last, I'd say, 15 years. I don't think anybody cares. In fact, (laughs) when I'm filling in or on the air, I often mention other guys on other stations. And uh, if they want to take it off, take it off. But that was shocking to me that it would be such an an outrage. And that was the – I guess you'd call it – paranoia back then about ratings you know you I said to him I said do you honestly think people are going to turn off our station and never listen again and turn on wherever I said they heard Jess Kane and never come back I mean how what do you take people for so that was a interesting experience yeah I let Jerry Williams name on the air and our program director heard it called me and said I want to see you when you get here tomorrow I thought, oh, God, I, I worried about it all night. I couldn't sleep. I thought, oh, this is it. And I walked into his offices and he said, okay, I've seen you. Now turn around and get out of here. <laughs> Jeez. Well, it, you remember, um, and, and maybe anybody in the business even today knows that there's, even if it's not this color, there's a red phone. There's a hotline that it, yep. it rings only in the studio and it's only for one reason. It's the boss looking to ream out the talent or make a make a point about something that uh, will really ruin the, the flow of the show. And we all know what that feels like. And there are times it's totally justified. I mean, if you listen to enough radio, you've heard a lot of silly things on the air. But um, I don't know. I, I, the best bosses I've ever had uh, were the ones that and this took several years, Kenny, probably 20, 25 years. But the best bosses I ever had were ones 
who knew what I could do, who understood that I understood what I was doing and got out of the way. Didn't mean that they weren't the boss and have connect, you know, corrective and, and constructive criticism, but they weren't writing my case on every other word. And that was a debarkation point for me when I finally got to that point in my career when I realized, wait a minute, I've been doing this longer than this schmuck's been alive. <laughs> you know, uh, I think I know a little bit about the the industry and about the, the audience particularly. So it's I don't I don't even know if it's like that anymore because I don't experience it. Um, but there were a lot of snarky, persnickety uh, worry warts who uh, drove us crazy in the old days. Yep, I had some of those. But I'll tell you uh, two things as far as making you feel good when you're on the air. I pre-taped an interview that with Kurt Gowdy. Uh, Kurt came into the station in the daytime, and we sat down and talked for an hour. And he told me it was one of the best interviews he ever had. I filled in for Glick and, and played that interview one night. After the interview was over, Bob Oaks, who was our program director at the time, called me on the air, said it was one of the best interviews he ever heard. And is that then, the same Bob Oaks from BUR no, for many years? Different Bob no, Oaks. Okay. Different Bob Oaks. He is now in Pennsylvania. And then I was interviewing Rosemary Clooney on a Saturday mm. night. And she casually said, you know what? I think you're better than Larry Glick. And I said, how do you know that? And he, she said, well, I have a, a, a uh, home here out in Kentucky. And I'm redecorating and repainting furniture. And I'm up late on Saturday nights and I've had a chance to listen to you. And I think you do a super job. Well, needless to say, there are a lot of Rosemary Clooney records played in my house for the next week. <laughs> so That's you never, so nice. know who's, yeah. never know who's listening. That's true. The, the never know who's listening thing, which is a um, part of the, the uh, sort of the moral code, uh, the prime directive, if you will, of broadcasting, in my opinion, is because you never know who's listening, you have a responsibility to present and to do what you do in, in a respectful and in, in a pr an appropriate manner. It can be entertaining as all get out, but there's always that sense of there's a line that shouldn't be crossed. It's my opinion. And, and that's the way I've sort of conducted myself. But yeah, you never know. I mean, uh, do you remember when uh, the first President Bush, the elder, would travel up to Maine and he would land at Portsmouth with Air Force One and go to Maine and all that? Um, and, uh, someone told me, I don't know, it's apocryphal perhaps that, you know, BZ was, was on in the compound up there in, uh, Kenny Bunkport and things like that make you kind of tingle with excitement, you know? Yeah, um, exactly. But, uh, yeah. And meeting the people, like, like, as you say, you've had a chance to interview hundreds of celebrities and people you've admired. That's one of the great byproducts of this business. What a, it's what you call a perk. It's a big, big perk. Absolutely. <laughs> big perk indeed. We all suffered depression at one time or another. I did for a while and got over it. And I didn't know this until I read your book. You suffered it for 15 years. Yes. Um, I didn't suffer it. I suffered it in silence for the most part. Uh, the only people who knew at the time, uh, during this period over the years, my late wife and my business partner, the aforementioned Ken, 
Carberry. Uh, I kept it from my kids who were young at the time. Uh, I did finally share it with my parents after about seven or eight years. And and I wrote about it because, uh, first of all, to destigmatize, right? It's not, yep. it's, it's so, I don't want to say uh, routine, but it's it affects people of all ages, of all types, all socioeconomic. But the thing about me, Kenny, and you know me very, very well, I mean, I'm yep. the life of the, I'm the life of the party. I'm Mr. <laughs> Joke and Jovial. And I, I realized, you know, first of all, I, I denied it. I denied what it was. I didn't want to think of myself as having a mental illness associated with this terrible feeling. And then after I finally uh, succumbed to what it was doing and realized I'm human, I've got to get through this as a human being, I, uh, I started to share with the audience. And that's why I wrote about it in the book. Uh, I shared with the audience because I felt actually closer to the audience than I did to some people I knew in my, in my life. Isn't that interesting? And uh, the audience was there for me. And, and as you probably found out when you share something and people are willing to accept you and share back, it's a, it's a potion of, of, it's a strong elixir makes you feel a lot better, a lot quicker. So, yep. It's just, it's just hard to believe that 15 years, that's a, that's a long time. Well, it wasn't, you know, continuous. I mean, it would come in waves and there were times when, when I, I I remember being on the air mainly at wish at SSH, a bright sunny morning in the window to the studio, face the window to the street. And then you could see it was a gorgeous day. The sun is out, blue sky, birds chirping. People are coming in, the salespeople are all walking by the window. And I would I would put a song on after announcing it and then go to the corner of the room away from the window and put my head down and sob. And I that's the only thing that made me feel better to get ready for the next time I crack the mic. So those are some pretty crazy days. <laughs> but I look back on it as, you know, I would never I don't want to go through it again because it it really yeah. is hard. But it it was a great teacher and a a change a life changing series of events that made me a better person. I believe you also believe it or not, and I didn't know this until I again read your book. You walked into a store in the middle of a robbery. Yeah, this this I I credit that quite frankly with the onset of the depression. Uh, it was a traumatic event. We all know about PTSD and soldiers and police officers, but Anyone can have trauma. Trauma is defined in different ways with different people. But my trauma was broad daylight in 1992, 90, no, right, the, the fall of 92. I walked into this store in the middle of a down, uh, suburban mini mart and uh, felt a gun on the back of my neck uh, and heard those f- favorite words, I'll clean it up, yeah. don't move or we'll shoot you, et cetera, et cetera. And there were some yeah. – and four letter words added to that. So I, I and the owners of the store were sort of held at gunpoint for about 20 minutes. And because your face is down and you're covering your head because they tell you to, you don't realize when it's over, when they left until somebody comes in, Hey, is everything okay? Everything okay. And it was like the old uh, expression you've heard life flashing before your eyes I, yeah. I, I was in a limbo. I had no idea where I was. I was in an out of body. 
So that was pretty dramatic, and I believe that was what kicked off the depression, quite frankly. Um, and then other things came to the surface as well, but uh, pretty harrowing and uh, makes you appreciate <laughs> being here. And also, uh, I think as a fan of crime adventures and things like that, there's nothing nothing that compares to the real thing, if you know what I mean. Yep. Hmm. Now, you mentioned Bill Flaherty in your book. Uh, yes. Who helped get you the job at WBZ Radio. Well, my story is no different than most people. It just happens to be in a business where, where people recognize you and know you from your voice and all that. But this happens in life all the time. Serendipity, I call it, or uh, kismet or whatever, where when I was working at the, the FM music station, we were right across the street from Soldiers Field Road, your old stomping ground, Kenny. Yeah, the great headquarters of WBZ. Everybody knew that address by heart. And um, I'd always thought when I pull into work at three thirty, four o'clock in the morning, boy, I would just love to know what that building looks like on the inside and work there just once. So after I got fired, it's it was six months before anybody would even talk to me. I couldn't get arrested because of my background. They They said, well, you're associated with that format, so we don't think we can use you, blah, blah, blah. And I still had my own business that I still have today. So I was making a living, but I was forlorn because I was out of radio and I thought that was it. You know, I've done, well, how many years? 15, 20, 20 years or so. And just have to sort of look back on it with fondness. But then I get a call from this guy, Bill, who at the time was just appointed assistant to the program director. But here's where it becomes the serendipity part. Um, I did a couple of favors for him over the years. What did I do? Well, BZ was covering, uh, here he is again, the Neil Diamond concert, let's say. (laughs) Didn't have any music because as you remember, Kenny, when they shifted format in the late 80s from music to talk and news, they gave up their license, their ASCAP BMI license basically, and didn't have the library. And this is before the internet. So I would dub a song on a reel-to-reel tape, <laughs> leave it at the front. I never met Bill. Leave it at the front of the desk. I say, it's out there for you. Whenever you need it, come by and pick it up. Did that t- two or three times, and he remembered. And so he called me out of the blue six or eight months after I got fired and said, would you like to fill in for Norm Nathan, who's going to be on vacation? That's how it happened. Mm-hmm. Now, a more sobering part of your book, there's a chapter in there about friends and family. In the beginning, you did what I did. You couldn't say no. And and me either. I mean, I would work Monday through Friday, work Friday night, and then go in and do Saturday night. And finally, I said, look, I, I can't do this anymore. You either got to give me Friday off or, uh, you know, I got to give up one of the shows. And they said, well, we're not giving you Friday off. So you got you, you to gotta give up either Friday or Saturday. Well, I had built an audience by that time, so I decided to give up Friday because I hadn't been on the air that long. And my replacement for that show was Tom Bergeron. Hmm. So I've been replaced by pretty famous people. You, you have um, nothing to be ashamed about <laughs> having <laughs> having others follow in your footsteps. Let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting way to put it. Yeah. In the In the chapter about family, you spend a great deal of time, rightfully so, talking about Wendy, your wife. And one of the things you mentioned in there, and I'm curious, you talk about Andrew and a particular situation 
uh, with with him and your wife and his mother. Tell us that story, and I'm curious to see if Andrew, what Andrew thought about it when he saw it in print. Uh, yes, Andrew, is, my son, happens to be an employee at WBZ to this day and uh, does a great job. He's an engineer and a producer and a writer. Um, your story you're referring to, I, I did tell this, obviously, in the book, and I told it on the air as well. Uh, my first late wife, Wendy, uh, suffered from cancer and had recurring bouts of it over the years, and the final two years were the downfall. And um, th- there were a lot of I'm not I'm not proud to say this, but there are a lot of stressors on family that sometimes get to the point where the stress of dealing with someone who's dying uh, really wears on you and and even cool headed dudes like me lose it. So uh, one of the things I got upset about one time, this was maybe six months before she passed, was Andrew's uh, seeming seeming non-interest. He would stay in his room and be very quiet. And he's very quiet anyway, if you know him. And I, I sort of lost my cool and said, what's the matter? You can't show emotion. What's the matter with you? And, and I, it was, I had never yelled at him, I literally never yelled at my son. My daughter, totally different story. We fight like cats and dogs, but my son, <laughs> not the case. So after reflecting on it and talking with Wendy about it, I apologized to him. And I said, uh, I came up with this idea. Don't ask me. It was inspired. But I said, why don't you write your feelings about what's going on? Because you're a good writer. And that's what he ended up majoring in in college. So he did. And he wrote this um, uh, Jeffersonian style piece of of copy that was so touching and so endearing. And Wendy and I and 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 well, she and I cried when we read it. And I still have it to this day. And it was a beautiful, heartfelt letter from someone who's not uh, prone to opening up, but there was another avenue for him to do it. And that stayed with me. It stayed with me to this day. And of course, uh, I think, I think I'm not a sage. I'm not a prophet. I'm not a, a wise mentor or coach or any of that stuff, but little things like this, I wanted to write about them because they affected me and by by osmosis, I think, can affect other people. If you ask somebody who's not loquacious, put your thoughts down in writing. No one's going to see it, but just do that. Uh, great things can happen, and they, they did in our case. Did How did he feel, though, when, when he found it in the book? Did he resent I, the fact at all that you put that No, in? not at all. I, my, my kids both read the book. They, they didn't have any issues, and if they did, they keep it to themselves. <laughs> But I don't believe they have any issues. Um, one thing about my kids that I that I'm very very happy with, and I write about this, is I I never wanted them to feel dad was impressive over other dads. I never wanted them to feel as though I was some kind of uh, big shot because I was on the radio. I'm just it's just my job. It's what I do. Now, was it fun when dad would bring them to meet celebrities? Was it fun when I got free tickets to you know the circus? Of course. But I didn't, and they never, it, they never did uh, have that inflated sense of who their father was, which is exactly the way I wanted it. Are you what you would say living the good life right now? Yeah, life is good. I uh, have the well. First of all, I've got my health, which is important to everybody these days. Um, I, I, as you know, I remarried 
back in uh, 2016. I uh, had the opportunity to meet a remarkable woman. You know her, Roberta, and we got married. We live in the city. Uh, have two gorgeous grandgirls that are six and two. And I still work every day. And I'm still at WBZ, which is remarkable because, as you know, Kenny, there have been a lot of corporate changes and a lot of major overhauls. Some of the people you and I both know and respect yep. uh, were, were summarily let go very quickly after years. And I'm still there filling in for Dan Ray and also doing my own features every weekend, which I love. So yeah, things are great. Things are good. I I um, even grow. I've grown a beard, in fact. Oh no! Yeah, really? no. Oh yes, yes. My no uh, kidding. I grew. I I figured I spent half my life shaving. So the rest of my life, if I don't have to shave as much, I can have more fun. <laughs> <laughs> okay, if if you say so. It's very attractive beard. It's it's an Edward Mulhair, circa <laughs> nineteen sixty three. It's a it's a good model. Well, uh, you know, I'm doing it myself. I'm retired now, and I get to do this program. It's not WBZ, but it's it's the Internet, and it's done with the city of Boston. And I get to do what I want with who I want, and I can do it right from here, from home. I'm sitting in a beautiful recliner right now uh, in our master bedroom talking to you, and I'm enjoying every minute of it. Well, I've got to compliment you, first of all, for those who know you, we love you anyway, but for those who don't know you personally, you are a not only a survivor, but a thriver. You've been able to thrive in every venue and and be a consistent Hall of Famer, which you are. And I think that's a credit to the passion you have. I mean, I love this business. I, I can, I've learned to say no, believe it or not, but I still love being on the air, being with you right now um creating writing voicing i love it all and you know if you love what you do you're pretty darn lucky oh yeah i mean i love this i've I've gotten to talk to people i never thought i would ever talk to you know you walk in the in the station and you run into jane fonda in the lobby or you run into vincent price or red <laughs> skelton or art linkletter who came to ball he came to boston several weeks after the 50th anniversary broadcast and somebody told me that he was over at BZTV. So I, I just happened to win my way over there and uh, I introduced myself and I said, have you got about 10 or 15 minutes to come over to WBZ radio and do an interview? And his comment was my friend, if we haven't got time, we'll make time. Mm. And he just got up and walked right out of the studio. Somebody told me later, they didn't know who looked happier link letter or me. Well, I can tell I can tell you that I, some of the interviews that you did were stay with me, like the Raymond Burr interview. Ah, yeah, Raymond Burr. One of my Burr. favorites. That that was terrific. And I mean, uh, how did you? Let's just go pull the curtain back. How did you get to book certain people in the old days before the internet and all that? How did you do it? I did it with the with the publishing company. I would call the publishing company. Um, Raymond Burr at the time had been doing commercials for some sort of crime stopper outfit. And he was coming to Boston and I was referred to his agent named Judy Newman, who was in New York. And she kept telling me, well, he's doing this, he's doing that. You know, he doesn't have time. And finally, I just said, look, tell me where Raymond Burr is tonight and, and, and leave him a message. Tell him to call me 
If he wants to do this interview, fine. If he doesn't, you know, I'll just fade into the sunset. And sure enough, he called me about 930 at night. And I knew instantly who he was. And he said, you recognize my voice? And I said, my God, who wouldn't? (laughs) (laughs) And and, uh, we talked and uh, we eventually met and did the interview. and, And he told me in the interview, he said, you know what? He said, if I ever want to know anything about my career, I'm going to call you. Well, that's <laughs> a compliment, compliment from that's a that's a well-deserved compliment. The reason that you've been successful, and I like to think it's part of my success, is because you put the time in to understand and know and and realize in context what the guest is all about or the book is all about. And people, it's like having a guest in your home and you don't prepare, you know, snacks or a drink. You just kind of willy-nilly throw it together. People understand that that's not the way to do it. So you've done a great job uh, researching and, and, and being truly curious about people. And that's what makes for a great interview, in my opinion. Well, I also found out that people enjoy talking about themselves. And when they find out you know about them, they're going to tell you more. Um, yeah. I interviewed uh, Candace Bergen once. Uh, and I played a tape of her on the air with her father when she was six years old. Mm. And she was more interested in discussing that than she was Murphy Brown. <laughs> so Yeah, that's the just, thing about celebrities. For the most part, you know, people ask them the same questions in a in a what they call a uh, cattle call interview process. And yep. when you can find a, a connection that might be local or might involve their background or history or childhood, that breaks everything open in like a flower. It just becomes a real conversation. And you're, you're the master at that. And uh, I'm, I'm learning from the master even now. <laughs> we had Robert McNeil one night on the air with David Finnegan, who I think was one of the best talents yeah. besides people like yourself that BZ ever had. And I had a recording of him on the air on November 22nd, 1963, broadcasting for NBC from a, from a phone booth in Dallas. And, and we played it for him, and he was just blown away by it. He thought that Finnegan and I were just amazing. And who's to say no? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I don't, don't disagree. I do, I do think that there's something very special about audio and how it affects our lives. And, of course, both of us live in this audio format world. But um, – the, the beauty of today is what we're doing right now on this wonderful network. What I do as yep. a podcaster as well as a broadcaster, Kenny, audio is flourishing. There's, there are hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of podcasts coming out, and just about all of them involve the spoken word, which is just so heartening. Well, I will use a phrase from your own book. Does anybody remember static? <laughs> yes, that I can all. And can I just get a quick plug in? I know we're almost out of time. Sure. Uh, and you you actually were kind enough off the air to even mention this, that you're going to participate. I didn't write this book to make any money. And I, I wouldn't, I first of all, I, I'm a realist. But second of all, I did it because I wanted to as a, you know, labor love. So I also decided uh, to donate every proceed that I get, and that's every penny, goes right to Boston Children's Hospital. And the reason I picked that one, of course, here I am talking to the man who was there at the <laughs> downtown crossing in the in the booth for many years with Larry. It, it's yep. the station's charity for many, many years, not any longer, I guess. But 
Um, and it's been so gratifying to sell copies. Uh, and, and by the way, the book, which is called On Air, My 50-Year Love Affair with Radio, is also available now as an audio book. And you told me, um, I guess, that you, you were able to access it on BARD. Yep. The Braille Audio Reading Download is what that stands for. Um, and there's a, there's a lot of great books on that. And it's funny because we mentioned The Music Man a little while ago. I just finished reading the biography of Ron Howard, and he was in the original production. He certainly was. He was in the uh, the movie version with Preston when he was yep. just a and little he sang, kid. He sang Gary, Indiana. And with I a pulled lift. up. <laughs> yes, he did. Yes. I pulled up the soundtrack, as a matter of fact, uh, last week and listened to it. It was great. It yeah, was right. just great. He, what a, what a charming guy. I've never interviewed him, but I, I just, everything about him, his family values and his talent as a director. I, I love it. But yeah, uh, I'm so glad. And, and it's also, uh, the, my book is now on the Perkins School for the Blind cassette uh, library series. So, ah, okay, um, great. they were nice enough to do it. But in any event, uh, it all proceeds go to benefit Boston Children's Hospital. And if you want to know more, my website which has all the details, jordanrich.com. Jordan, I, I can't thank you enough for doing this. Uh, I am so glad that you have been a friend of mine for so long, um, 30 years. It seems like yesterday uh, we met a nat at a Natalie Cole concert, as a matter mm -hmm. of fact. Uh, and I don't want to think back of how far that was, but we've been friends ever since, and I value it and you. And as I told you, you can be proud of this book. And your children can be proud of it, and they can be proud of you as a father as well. Well, you're very, very kind. And I will say without any, uh, with all honesty, that uh, meeting Kenny Meyer 30 years ago plus was a thrill, and having you as a friend is, is a great joy and honor. So thank you, my buddy. Thank you so much. I thank, thank you, Jordan. Happy New Year again. And that will do it for this first edition of the new year on City Talk. Good night, everybody. Thanks for listening to another great conversation with Ken Meyer and friends. You can contact Ken by email. The address is kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. That's kjmeyer7 at gmail.com. Tune in next time for more conversation with Ken Meyer on City Talk.